continue our study of the Old Testament book of Exodus by looking at the plagues of plagues God sent on Egypt. In the interest of time, we will only read the account of one plague in Exodus 9. So far, God has turned the Nile River to blood, sent an infestation of frogs, then gnats, then flies. He killed all the livestock of Egypt and caused all Egyptians to break out in painful boils. After the plague of hail, there will, be, there will still be three more plagues. Each time, Moses tells Pharaoh to let his people go, and Pharaoh defies God by refusing. Here's the scripture reading. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may say, that may they that they may serve me for this time i will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth for by now i could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth but for this purpose i have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast, and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And then the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned, the Lord is in the right, the Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord, the thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they, were, they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of the Pharaoh... Was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord has spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. The Super Bowl was quite disappointing. 
uh, in this area of the country. And um, the, the, the outcome was disappointing. I'm sure you guys were just as sad as I was. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I'm still hashtag keep pounding, um, but I'm also not quite sure what that means. But, um, <laughs> Uh, keep pounding a large drum, I think is what it means. Um, anyway, so the Super Bowl was disappointing, but what wasn't disappointing was Beyonce. Um, and the response that you just had to just the name of Beyonce so proves my point. Um, the beauty about Beyonce is manifold. Um, but Beyonce just came into, you know, Coldplay is playing, and she just walks in from the side with full confidence, because she's Beyonce, and she does what she wants to do. I wouldn't be surprised if she wasn't even actually supposed to perform, and she was like, I'm here. <laughs> they need me. Um, but we're, the reason why we're totally okay with Beyonce like flaunting her confidence is because Beyonce is the queen. Um, Beyonce is the, the tippy top of the spear. And if Beyonce had gotten on stage and said, like, Coldplay and Bruno Mars, and also Taylor Swift and Rihanna bow down to me, we would have been like, well, that's something that they should clearly do. Like, that's, um, because Beyonce is the queen bee. And um, we're totally comfortable with that because she deserves it. We're totally com- comfortable with Beyonce basking in her own glory and flaunting her own glory even. Um, and I agree with that wholeheartedly and love the woman. Um, <laughs> But when we're confronted in the scripture with God basically saying, I'm the king, bow down to me, we suddenly feel a bit more conflicted about that and uncomfortable with that. And the reason why God sends these plagues, we've been studying through Exodus, um, and the reason why God sends these plagues on Egypt is, yes, on the one hand, to punish them, yes, on the one hand, so that they'll let his people go out of slavery. His people, Israel, were slaves in Egypt. But I tried to figure out a way, reading this, the, all this text of the plagues, to find a reason why God did this besides, so everyone will know that I am awesome. And again and again and again, God says, I'm sending these plagues on Egypt so that everyone will know that I am the Lord. And that they basically will bow down to me. And the reason why God does every single thing that he does, and the reason why God has done every single thing that God has done, is so that he gets glory. And so that you know that he is amazing. And that sits sort of uncomfortably with me. And that might sit sort of uncomfortably with you. But the reality is that God's greatest desire... The thing that he is all about is manifesting his glory, his transcendence, his beauty, um, his power, his might, his justice. And he wants everyone to see it, that we will know and kneel to him. And I think that might land with you kind of awkwardly as it does with me. Um, But I think if we let it, that can be really life changing for us. And I think this passage shows us why. God is fighting in this passage for his glory, that his glory will be known. And the first way he's fighting for his glory is by fighting for his people. He comes in and he's going to fight for these people. Martin Luther King Jr. said, freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. The oppressed must demand freedom. And he was right. 
And look, look in verse 13 of the passage there. You have it on your sheet. If you need a Bible, by the way, we have free ones in the back. You can just take them. Um, the Lord says, said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. He identifies himself with this completely insignificant group of slaves. He says, my name is the God of the Hebrews. Let my people go that they may serve me. He's advocating for his people. He's demanding their freedom. Let them go now. I demand it of you. I'm not capitulating to you. I'm not asking. I'm telling you, let them go. But he doesn't just say, let them go. He's coming to fight for them. God is in many ways like Liam Neeson. Um, Not just because Liam Neeson is the voice of several different gods in several different movies, which just occurred to me. He was the voice of Aslan. He's the voice of, uh, and there's like a Greek gods movie. He's Zeus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Clash of the Titans, thank you. Um, uh, but God is very much like Liam Neeson in um, Taken. On the one hand, he is this like loving father that is full of care, right, for his people. Like he's filled with compassion and care for them. But he's also a person with a certain set of skills. Um <laughs> I guess that was lamer than I thought it was going to be before I wrote it down. So thank you, JD. It feels like the, the, the lame laughter feels a lot stronger in here than it does in the union. But, um, but God, God's a fighter. He has a certain set of skills. Like he, he turns the Nile River to blood and kills everything in, in the Nile. Um, he sends gnats and flies that are probably mosquitoes on everybody. Like, like gnats and flies like in your mouth, in your ears, in your food, in your bed, everywhere. He kills all the livestock and domesticated animals in Egypt. Um, he sends people's boils on them. It's like, it's like middle school all over again, but really painful in a different way. Boils all over their body, breaking out everywhere. Um, hail that kills all of, the, all of the crops. Locusts that come and eat whatever's left. He sends darkness, and ultimately he ends up killing all the firstborn children in Egypt. And the reason why he does that is because he's fighting for his people. He is not just content to say, let them go. He is going to come and fight for them and redeem them and take them out of this place. And if you're going to oppress his people, he will fight you. And I I bring that up just to say, if you're hurting tonight and you're, you're feeling alone, I want this to be a really a great comfort to you. That God comes and fights for his people. He doesn't say, go be free. He says, I will come and I will free you myself. But what's really interesting in this passage to me is that he makes a distinction when he sends these plagues on Egypt and Israel. If you look in verse 26 at the bottom of the sheet, the hail comes, it strikes down everything. It's like literally destroying everything, all the plants. And it says, only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. This hail's falling everywhere except for where his people are. And this is what I think God is doing. God is making it really obvious to everyone watching that he's judging these people and he's not judging these people. And he wants everyone to look and see. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of pointing to the passage a little bit more than normally. But if you flip over and look at the, the, the last verse on the sheet, basically he says, I'm doing all these things that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. God fought for his people so that they would know, their sons, their grandchildren, everyone would know that he is awesome. 
and that he is the Lord. He literally, God saves people. If you wonder, like, why does God even do this at all? On the one hand, it is because he really loves us and cares for us. And everything in me always wants to preach a sermon like God is gentle. He's kind. He loves you. He's like your boyfriend. That's but the, a boyfriend that's actually really nice to you. Um, but when I come to this passage, yes, it's because he loves him, but also because he wants glory. That's what this whole thing is about. The reason why God saves people is so that he can receive glory. He fights for his glory by, by fighting for his people. But God also fights for his glory by exposing false gods. The plagues are really like weird. Um, like if you were going to like punish a nation of people, like an empire, I'm not sure like the means that you might do that. I don't know if you'd be like, I'm frogs in all the land, frogs hopping everywhere. Um, you know, bow before my frog, my frogs, um, or my gnats, or my boils, or whatever. But all of these plagues have a very specific purpose. God is dismantling this evil empire that has oppressed his people. And it's a physical battle, but it's also spiritual. God comes to Egypt and he says, look, you guys worship all these different gods. Okay? You have a God for the Nile. You have a God for everything. And you think that these gods, if you worship them and bow down to them, will make your life okay. They will give you children and they will give you land and they will give you crops. Um, they're they're going to give you success and health and happiness. But they're not real. Um, they're false. They're fake. They can't do the thing for you that you want them to do. And he exposes them one by one. This is going to be really weird. Okay, so just hang, hang with me. All right? Everybody here? Okay, good. Um, the first play, God turns the Nile River to blood. Um... The Nile in Egypt was a very spiritual thing, and it was deified as a god called Hapi. And Hapi was the source of life. He was pictured as a bearded man, just hanging there, a bearded man with female breasts and was pregnant. And it represented fertility. So when God comes and he turns the Nile River to blood, he's in a sense saying, the thing that you think can give you fertility that you bow down to and you worship as a god is dead. And watch its blood flow. And it can't give you life anymore. Everything in it is dead. The second plague, he sends frogs, which seems random. Um, the frog represented a god called Heket. And Heket was the, the wife of the creator god. He would, the god would create them on his potter's wheel, and Heket would breathe life into them. And one of her jobs was to keep the frog population down by putting crocodiles out. This is, they worshipped her as the one that sent crocodiles to keep frogs down. And he sends millions and millions of millions of frogs that are like literally jumping all over people to say, like, your God can't keep back the frogs if I want to send the frogs. Um, he sends pestilence on domesticated animals because people worship bulls and cows and saw them as gods. They, they were manifestations of God. He killed them. And the last thing he does before he kills the firstborn is he makes darkness. Darkness so that people don't even, like, leave their bed. It's so dark. Like, they can't see anything. It's not like they just flip on the lights, right? Because the highest deity in Egypt was Amun-Ra, who was the, the god of the sun. And God was saying, if I want the sun to stop shining, Ra doesn't stop that. I stop that. He's saying, you think Pharaoh and all of these gods can control the created order, and they can't do anything. They're false. They're frauds. And he systematically dismantles them. And he says, I am the Lord, and they are not. Um, they're like, did you guys watch Scooby-Doo when you were growing up? Is this like not a thing anymore? Okay. Um, 
you know, every, the end of every Scooby-Doo episode, you know, they, they find the monster, the bad guy, and he's really scary. And then, like, somehow just by, like, pulling off the mask, like, the whole thing falls apart. And it's always, like, the janitor or, like, the, the camp director or whatever it was. And, um, you know, I would have got away with it if it wasn't for you pesky kids and your meddling dog, you know. Um, but in a sense, God removes that mask from this big thing that seems so scary and says, it's just an ordinary person, and it can't do anything for you. This is how I felt when I saw Star Wars and, like, Kylo Ren, you know, and he's got this, like, epic lightsaber, and it's all, he's, like, angry and awesome and scary. But then, like, when he took off the mask, I was like, this is the gooberiest-looking dude that I've ever seen. Um, uh, like, when he took off the mask, I thought it was, like, kind of a joke. Like, that can't be the guy. Like, he's not scary at all. Maybe that's kind of, like, the, the genius of it. Um, if anyway. Um, he's just this goobery guy that gets really scary with the mask on, but when he takes it off, he's just a guy. He's just an angry guy with legitimately with daddy issues. And reminds me of myself pretty much. Um, God is distinguishing himself from the gods of Egypt from saying they're false and weak. And look, this is why that's good news for us, that God does that. Because we desperately need for God to show us that false gods are false and that he's real. Because you and I can't tell the difference between real gods and fake ones. Um, Because if you you think about it, they worship these gods because they believe that they would give them the good life and they would make everything all right. Um, How many of you think that like, Meeting the right boyfriend or girlfriend will make everything okay. Like, then it will be okay. Like, if I got the right Sadie Hawkins date, then, like, it'll be fine. No no, no big deal. Um, How many of you think that, like, getting engaged or married to your current perfect boyfriend or girlfriend, then everything is going to be, like, it's going to be fine. Like, I'm going to stop struggling with porn. I'm going to stop struggling with, like, needing guys to like me, and everything's going to be cool, and we're just going to ride it out from there. Um... And of course, that feels big, and that's a false god. Um, I mean, some of us think, like, we get more Instagram followers. If, like, I get 100 likes on my profile picture, then I will feel just a little bit better about things. And we're so, we are, like, legitimately silly and foolish, and we don't know false gods from the real one. And we need God to show us that only he can give us life and health and peace, and the things that we worship can only hurt us and consume us. Uh, my wife was showing me an article speaking about marriage. Um, and there was a guy, and he, he was playing Ultimate Frisbee with a friend who was married. And the guy was like, you know, it's just, we're in a really rough patch, and it feels like things are really stagnant. And, um, you know, like, we don't have that romance, like, anymore. Like, it's not exciting anymore. And what the guy wrote, I thought was really thoughtful about his friend. He said, my friend had yet to realize the paradox. If the point of your relationship is your relationship you will make yourselves very sad. Um, If it's about God's work, a commission you're actively discovering and pursuing, you invigorate the relationship. He's making a really valid point. When the point is the relationship, you are sad. And you totally lack fulfillment, and it begins to destroy you. But when your relationship is about something else, namely God, then there's life and vitality there. So God fights for his glory, and he says, look, God bless you. I'm not going to let you, sir, I will take everything else apart so you will know that there's no glory there and the glory is with me. Um, And lastly, God fights for his glory by being in complete control. 
And I, I kind of wanted to zoom through that stuff so I could get to this to spend the time on it. Because this is a point where I think some of us will get kind of sideways and this is going to really stick in our crawl the wrong way. Um, God fights for his glory by being in complete control. Look with me again at the passage because I want to be careful. Um, look at the beginning and starting in verse 14. God says, For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show my, you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Drop down to 34 and 35, it's on the next page. Again, I, I want to make sure that we're reading it together so that we're careful. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go. And then verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, listen to this, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that it may show these signs among them. Um, this is where things get uncomfortable because we're like, Okay, I'm cool when it's like Pharaoh hardened his heart, he didn't do the thing. But I started to get real uncomfortable when it's like, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and then God judged Pharaoh for having a hard heart. Um, Did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Yes. Was Pharaoh like a great guy that was just looking out for the best interests of Israel and was probably going to let him go eventually anyway? No. But did God also harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. And did God expressly say in the first passage that he, the whole reason he raised Pharaoh up was so that he could judge Pharaoh? Yes. Um, absolutely. And before you freak out and you're like, you know, I was waiting for Arif to do something weird. And I've been in two years now. And now they're like unrolling it. And they're in the weird church that got us in the Presbyterian church. Um <laughs> Uh, Before you freak out, let me start by saying um, the things that me and you think are weird are are just weird to think that way. This is what I mean. Um, I love Peyton Manning, okay, who was the quarterback for the Denver Broncos who beat our beloved Panthers on Sunday. And I love Cam Newton. This is well established. I have pictures of Cam Newton in my office, and I'm not kidding. Um, (laughs) uh, I love them both. They were both just on the greatest stage of their life. Cam Newton's 26 years old, first time in the Super Bowl. He's like the young face of the NFL. He's exciting. I love him because he's not boring to watch play football. How could you be boring and play football? I'm looking at you, Tom Brady. And um, <laughs> anyway, I love him. So the guy's on, on this huge stage for the first time. He's up and coming. And then you got this guy who this is probably his last football game ever. And he's one of the greatest all-time quarterbacks. And he just won the Super Bowl. This is like literally the, like the mountaintop experience for Peyton Manning. Cam loses and is very emotional and walks out of a press conference. And we're like, man, that's weird. I can't really understand why this dude who just spent the last 20 years of his life completely committed to this moment and lost would get like ticked off and leave the press conference. That's bad. Weird. <laughs> and my bias is showing a little bit. Um, <laughs> Meanwhile, Peyton Manning, who I love, literally is on the field after, like, this has got to be, like, his greatest ever moment. He's about to ride into the sunset. This is, like, the moment. His last moment on the field to play as an active player. 
And the last thing he says is, I'm going to drink a lot of Budweiser tonight. It was like, it was a product placement. Like, literally, like, the last thing he ever said to the watching world after an illustrious and beautiful career, he's riding off like I'm like a stallion with, like, carrying a Budweiser, you know, <laughs> thing. And, like, I get it, and it's cool, it's fine, but that's weird. Like, that's really legitimately weird. Like, he hugged Papa John when he was running out onto the field. And he's like, America, you know what I want you to remember about me on the field of play? Budweiser, king of beers. Um, The things we think are weird are weird. It isn't weird for God to be in control of everything. He's God. Like, we're just talking about terminology here. Like, we think it's weird. Like, God can't, like, encroach in this zone. But he's like, I am God. Like, he literally said his name a couple of chapters ago is I am who I am. Um, and the big application of this whole talk tonight is this. Um, you will never worship God unless he gets to be God. If he can't be great to you, and he can't be wild to you, and he can't be huge to you, and he can't do things that make you uncomfortable, you will never, ever, ever worship him. And the reason why, whether you're here and you're a Christian or not, the reason why you're struggling to worship him is because you won't just be comfortable with him being who he is. Um, this is also the reason why we have terrible relationships with each other, but that's another point. Um, I, was, I was talking to someone the other day, and it was a really honest moment, and she said, you know, I'm just struggling with heaven because, like, I don't know that I want to go to heaven and just, like, worship God for eternity. That sounds boring. Um, and I understand that completely. But the problem there isn't that you'll spend eternity worshiping. It's that you don't know anything about who God is and how great he is. And the fact that you could spend eternity worshiping this person and never get tired of it. Um, Romans chapter 9 basically says, look, he's talking about Pharaoh and he says, I raised them up so I could show my power. So God has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. And I don't throw that out to you to like make that like digestible or easy. But the fact is, God can and has every right to control Pharaoh, his decisions, um, because he's God. Proverbs 16, I just read it this morning. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God is completely in control of everything. There is not a molecule in the universe that God is not in control of right now. Um, He is an absolute being. And here's where I want to kind of bring this down together. Um, There is, we we talk about a lot of times in our circles, uh, in Christian circles or whatever, that, you know, God can really use a hard circumstance and do something good with it. Like he can use sin for good and for his glory. Um, And we want to be really like, sometimes, but the reality is God always uses bad things that we're responsible for to bring about good. And sometimes that means because God gets to judge. Um, And that makes me super uncomfortable. And I don't know exactly always what that means, but I do know this. God used the hardened hearts of a Judas. God used the hardened hearts of 
the chief priests in Israel that were determined to have Jesus killed. He used the hard hearts and injustice of Pontius Pilate, who was in charge of the whole thing, and the hard hearts of everybody involved to have his own son killed. So that he could overcome that. He literally used the hardening of other people to have his own son killed. And the scripture says that was according to his definite plan and foreknowledge. Jesus died, which is the greatest power of sin, to overcome sin. And God used it all. Um, and if you, if you can't just take God at, at being in control, then it's going to be hard to worship him. Anne Lamott um, has a great quote, and it's really not really related to this, but we'll get there in a second. She said, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out he, God hates all the same people you do. You guys ever heard that? Um, you can safely assume that you've created God in your image when it turns out God hates all the same people you do. And I would say to this, and just kind of twist this a little bit, you can safely assume that you created God in your image when it turns out that God would do everything the way that you would want him to do it. Because it probably just means that you're just worshiping yourself and just wanting to feel good about tossing that prayer up um, so that you can feel better about it. And look, unbelief, no matter who you are in this room, including me, including Josh that works with refugees, the reason why we sin is because we don't believe. We have unbelief. And unbelief isn't just saying there is no God. Unbelief is saying, yeah, God can't do it that way. He doesn't get to be that. He doesn't get to do that. And you're never going to worship God unless he can be great. And the, the last thing, this is the last one I want to say. And this is a question. Deep down... Don't you really, really want God to be that big? Don't you want God to be that in control? Um, a lot of you guys are working for justice and really want to change the world. And like, I'm inspired by you. We sit down, you know, for coffee and talk, and I'm really like super inspired by the things you want to do. And like, don't you want God to be that involved if He's good? Um. Some of you guys have been crying with friends and have been for the last couple of years who have been abused or you're crying because you've been abused, taken advantage of and hurt. Like, don't you want God to be involved in that and in control of that? Um, St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they find their rest in thee. And until our hearts can rest in a God who is big and in control and good and wild, they will never have rest. Um, God is, is enough to satisfy you. He's big enough to satisfy you. Um, he's big enough to satisfy your intellectual curiosity. He's big enough to satisfy your doubts that you bring here tonight. Um, that's why we always encourage you to come with your doubts because we think God can answer them. God's big enough to satisfy your imagination, your longings. And that's scary. Um, but doesn't it sound restful? Uh, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you are with us tonight. Thank you that um, you are in control. And I don't really always know exactly what that means or how that looks or how that works itself out. But I want to worship you. And um, we know that you are big enough and great enough. And you are full of glory and majesty. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to see you as you are, not so that our life would like suddenly figure itself out, 
but so that we would love the right things um, and be captivated in you. And we thank you that you were with us tonight. In Jesus' name.